some of the things we talk about in this episode could be potentially triggering. So please be advised. Jenna, today we're talking to a woman I really admire. I'm so excited to speak with her. Yes, Kansali Nishimwe. She's an author, motivational speaker, and one of the world's leading advocates against sexual violence. And it's a miracle that Kansali survived. In the past six weeks, the rebels, most of them from the minority Tutsi tribe, have taken half the country and are still advancing south to where the remains of the Hutu-led government is based. Aid workers guess that between 200,000 and half a million Rwandans have been killed in the fighting, most of them Tutsis. This is a story of a woman who survived hell on earth. Imagine it's 1994 and you live in Rwanda. You're certain it's the most beautiful place on earth. But for the last few months, it's been hell. Your tribe, the Tutsi, have been the subject of mass murder at the hands of another tribe, the Hutu. You've been running from the killers for months, and today you're hiding in the bushes near a river. You've been hiding there for a few hours, every moment punctuated by screams you hear in the distance. Killers drag people through the streets. Women are being brutalized. You're so numb to it that you're able to sleep for a few moments. And in the haze in between asleep and awake, a twig snaps nearby that pulls you back instantly. The killers are here, in your hiding spot. And you pray they can't hear your heart beating. It's so loud, you're sure it'll give you away. They pause a moment by the river, and the water is cool, and they laugh and are splashing each other. Some of them are barely older than boys. Suddenly, you twitch and a branch rustles, and they freeze to listen. You don't even dare to breathe. It's probably just a bird, one of them says. It's time to go, another offers. After they go, it takes a long time for your heart rate to slow. But you've made it another day. You're still here. You've survived. Wondery. I'm Jenna Brister. And I'm Ogatoy Wenjuki. This is I Survivor. This is the show about the attacks, the assaults, the manipulation, the fear, and the triumphs. About the people who fought back, who won, and who spent each day rising above the trauma of that experience. Today we're talking about something very serious and can be graphic and violent, so please be advised. We're going to be talking to Consuli Nishimwe, survivor of the Rwandan genocide. To fully understand Consuli's experiences, we need to have a quick history lesson. So in the beginning in Rwanda, there were three tribes that lived together. There were the Hutus, the Tutsis, and the Twa. They each had their own economic roles in society. So the Hutus were the majority and they were farmers. And the Tutsi were a smaller tribe who were seen as the elites. More on that later. But they owned land and they raised cattle. And the Twa, hunter-gatherers. This was a pretty stable system, but a Hutu could marry a Tutsi and move up if they accumulated enough wealth. 
There were clear social lines at the time, but movement between the groups was possible, obviously, through marriage, and they got along pretty well. There were some conflicts. So things really changed in the 1930s when Rwanda was under Belgian occupation. The government uh, issued identity cards with the tribal names on them to really sow division. So if your card said you were a Hutu, you were always a Hutu, no matter what. Tensions between the groups grew, and they exploded in 1990 when the civil war broke out between a mostly Hutu government and a Tutsi-backed resistance force. The Hutus were the majority in Rwanda at the time. On April 6, 1994, the Hutu president was assassinated. The Tutsi resistance was suspected, and on the next day, April 7th, anti-Tutsi militia groups started hunting and slaughtering Tutsi. The Hutu were urged to take up machetes and kill their Tutsi neighbors. So in just 100 days, the Hutu slaughtered an estimated 500,000 to a million Rwandans, killing 70% of the Tutsi population. She lost her father and all her brothers, but somehow constantly survived. Here's her story. Growing up in Rwanda, uh, for me, I was uh, very fortunate to be able to have uh, both parents. And uh, Rwanda, for those who don't know, Rwanda is located in um, Central Africa, East Africa. It's a small country. We call it a country of thousand hills. We have a lot of hills. So it's a country where it's known for really a very hard history. I grew up in a small town and family is a really a big thing in, in Rwanda. So we value much about family and also uh, we are oral storytellers. So we used to sit down and talk about a lot about our lives and everything. So about, you know, culture. So um, when I was growing up, I was very accustomed to seeing, you know, everybody around me, neighbors, most of our family members were uh, not far from each other. We used to have people coming to our homes, visiting each other. It was very normal, you know, growing up, despite difficult history where, because we had a minority Tutsis, which uh, was very discriminated against, the Hutus was um, discriminating the Tutsis. 1959, that's when the genocide actually began, but it was not a big genocide. Tutsis were murdered, and many of them uh, left the countries. Those who remain in the country, like my grandparents and many others, um, it was not easy for them. They were discriminated against um, all the time, but they managed to live there, even though it was not easy. And I, I was born in a time when they really, they were going through so much. And um, it never stopped because in 1994, that's when they planned a genocide where they wanted to eliminate everybody who has remained in Rwanda. So, and that's why we had a genocide. So um, leading up to the time the genocide happened, uh, of course, I was a teenager. I was 14 years old. Everything about the history, I learned it from my parents, my mom, and I never understood what was happening very much. I never really thought too much about it until I was in junior high school. My, uh, my classmate at the time, who was uh, Hutu, uh, you know, was bullying um, some of the Tutsis in the classrooms, including me. So, and that's when I realized how discriminated we were, even though I was still a teenager. And, but it was a scary moment for me. In April, in 19, you know, April 7th, 1994, 
realizing that everything changed in the country, hearing on the radio how they were going to to kill everybody, and they were telling all our neighbors, the Hutus, uh, to search the Tutsis and murder them. Um, you know, hearing that as a child, you know, on the radio, it was not a, I, I couldn't understand why they were saying that. So until many of us in our village, because I grew up in a small town in the western province of the country, I had uh, um, my parents and my sister and my three younger brothers who were aged from age 14, 11, uh, 9 years old, 7 and 16 months old and my both parents who were teachers. I will never forget the day we we left. In the beginning when we left, we hoped that we were going back home. Everybody were told to leave and go to the stadium. We decided to follow the crowd and go to the stadium. Um, and um, that, that I will never forget the day we were walking on the street and we were many of us, and by the time we we were following the crowd, that's when our homes were uh, being burned down, and um, we could see them, you know, in, in the hill because we were walking in the hills. So that's when I realized um, things were going to be bad. So of course we were scared, but our parents couldn't have any anything to tell us because we we're young; they didn't want to keep scaring us. So. As we kept following the crowd, you know, I'll never forget it because in Rwanda, many of us are Christian. We are a majority are Christians. People were singing gospel songs, you know, asking Jesus help us through these trials and tribulations. And, you know, there were many people, young kids were crying, old women. I'll never forget those um, cries and um of older women who were supposed to be home and now they, they are forced to walk miles. And as we were following the crowd, uh, my mother told all of us that we shouldn't maybe keep following the crowd. And uh, we decided to go to a neighbor, which was not far from the road where we were walking. So we went in their home and uh, of course we were passing in the middle of um, many extremist Hutus already started going everywhere to kill and they were carrying things from some homes that they robbed in their homes before they burned them down. So they took everything we had in our hands. Of course, as you can imagine, it was very scary and um, I were able to go in their home and they hid us in their house, and uh, and we didn't know what the rest of the, the crowd, what would happen to them. They kept walking on the street, and many of them who actually reached in the stadium, majority, almost everybody was murdered in that stadium. So now we have a memorial in that stadium. So as we were hiding in this house, and they actually managed to make us climb up in the ceiling. But that was the only place at least we can hide. During the genocide, you never know who was going to be kind, how uh, you know people changed because they were already taught to discriminate the Tutsis many years. Um, we never knew how, how long we were going to be there. So until this family decided to tell us a few days later that we're not supposed to stay there anymore. So that's why we left their home. 
I remember the night we left, it was um, very dark and we had to go through the bushes and in a small, you know, small uh, forest near, not too far from their home. And um, that's where we lay down on the ground for until the morning, we're able to go hiding again in the bushes close to the, uh, a river. And um, my parents were thinking where they were going to take us again, who was going to hide us again. So, and uh, early that morning, it was almost close to 5 a.m. in the morning. So we were sitting in the middle of the Sogom plantations near the river. And already in the morning, most of the people were part of the killing. They started going around to search who they were going to kill. So they started running and, you know, already they had these um, slogans, you know, they had all these songs they were singing singing about how uh, they are going to kill everybody from young to old. So, uh, uh, you know, I remember when we were sitting there, my mother kept telling all of us to pray. So she started telling me and my siblings and my dad and my aunt to pray in our hearts. And um, my mom was very strong, actually stronger than everybody else. And my dad was really scared. I've never seen him really looking the way he was looking, and my aunt as well. So as we, we were sitting there, we heard these killers coming and, you know, saying, we see, you know, you cockroaches, because they used these words of dehumanization as cockroaches and snakes, that's how they used to call us. So, and uh, they say, whatever you are, show yourselves, you know, as kids, you you know, we were trembling and scared. We came out of the bushes, you know, my mom already told us to stay together, whatever happens, at least we'll all be together. So we came out, um, as we came out of the bushes, and already these killers surrounded us. They had machetes, they had clubs, and um, it was so scary to even look at them. Um, immediately, my aunt, because of how scared she was, um, she ran and she was murdered, uh, not too far from where we were. The rest of us who remained together, um, they took everything we had, and my dad had some money in his pockets. They took the money. And, um, and there was this young lady who used to stay with us in our home, uh, but she was a Hutu. She already ran also, but nobody knew, you know, whether she was murdered. So we tried even to search for her. We couldn't find her. So the rest of us, uh, my mom, my, my, my siblings, and my dad, we decided to run again. It was early in the morning, so already the killers were everywhere. They had roadblocks everywhere on the main roads, so it was hard for us to even figure how to get to another home. So we had to go through the bushes in order for us to get to uh, a home where we can ask someone, you know, in that home, someone to help us, at least hide us in their home. So as we reached to this um, home and we climbed up in the hills, we reached to this home where there were many people were sitting outside. And a lot of times in those times, because nothing else was happening in the country, so uh, there was no school, nothing else everybody was doing except that some of the people would be sitting outside and watching how people are going to be captured or some other people we call 
uh, the, the killers and say we, we see a Tutsi, please follow this person. And already the, some people were calling that they found us. Um, and uh, they, they were mentioning my dad's name. So my, as my parents were teachers in, uh, in the community, they have taught so many people. And everybody, most of the time in a small town, everybody knows each other. So they knew uh, who they were very well. So, and as we reached to this home, uh, there's this young lady who was sitting outside. Uh, she, because my dad was holding my younger brother, who was 16 months old, in his hands, she took him from him and she told all of us to follow her in the house. My dad decided to run to go in different directions so he can hide in a different way, not the same place as us. The killers decided to follow my dad. The rest of us um, went in this house and we, they hit us again in the, in the ceiling of the house. And um, I will never forget, by the time we entered the home, there was this young girl. She's alive now. She, she lives actually in South Africa. She, they already murdered her mom and she was bleeding because they cut her with a machete on, on her head. And as we went inside, um, as you can imagine, my mom, it was hard for her to even look at what her kids are going through. And she, she tried as the best she could to comfort all of us. But even, even though I was a teenager, but I tried myself to, you know, play also a role of being like older uh, sibling and, and comforting my siblings too. Later that evening, um, because the kids were coming and talking and, you know, about how many people they murdered. So near that house, there was a bar. So everybody would come outside and drinking and talking how many people they murdered. So each one kind of like rejoicing how they are doing a good job. And uh, especially in each village, some people would talk about who they, they murdered, the names of people. As I was listening, it was me and my mom listening, but the, my siblings were young to even pay attention what was being said outside. So uh, I never forget, um, I never thought they were going to say they murdered my dad. Who was, um, who taught their kids in school, who was a very nice person to almost, you know, everybody he met. So simply because he was a Tutsi and they were happy uh, what they did. It was, um, it was very hard. I cried together with my mom. Uh, we didn't know whether we were going to survive. And we didn't know where we were going to be again, how we were going to survive, um, whether the genocide would stop, so none of us knew. Um, but we kept hiding in those three months um, in several places where uh, some people called killers for us and others refused to help or even did some horrible things to us. So, Jenna, what is the first thing you do when you get home? Oh, take off my bra and put on sweatpants. You? Big same. (laughs) (laughs) There is honestly no greater feeling of of end-of-day relief. But that's probably because most of us are wearing bras that don't actually fit. 
Thankfully, Third Love knew we deserved better, so they designed bras using women's real measurements. They take breast size and shape into account, and they've got the most sizes of any bra brand. They have cup sizes from A through H, bands up to 48, and they even have half cup sizing so everyone can find the perfect fit. All you have to do is take their fun Fit Finder quiz online. Yes, it came in handy for me because I recently lost a lot of weight and my bra size changed. So I did it and got matched up with the cotton t-shirt bra and it's hands down the most comfortable bra that I own. I wear it far too often. I, I'm wearing it now. Yes. I'm going to flash her. <laughs> you can prove it. <laughs> Their new cotton collection is made of premium Pima cotton, so it's ridiculously soft. And all Third Love bras are tagless, so there's no scratchy labels you have to clip off. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering iSurvivor listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash survivor to get 15% off your purchase and support the show. And your boobs. <laughs> That's thirdlove.com slash survivor. Admitting fault is so hard. So let me break the news to you. You're probably brushing your teeth wrong. I know I was. Here's the harsh reality, y'all. Up to 90% of us don't brush our teeth for a full two minutes or clean our teeth evenly. Totally. I had no idea about the two-minute rule. And brushing your teeth is such an important thing to do for your health every day and your social life, obviously. So do yourself a favor and get a Quip electric toothbrush. What I really love about Quip is that they have these sensitive sonic vibrations that are super effective, yet they're gentle on the gums. I just got the gold one, and it's amazing. It's so much smaller than other electric toothbrushes. And it doesn't require this, like, ugly, clunky charger. Exactly. Free up that counter space. Plus, every three months, Quip delivers new brush heads for just 5 bucks. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had a toothbrush with bristles going haywire. <laughs> and the fact that I don't have to leave my house to get new brush heads is also life-changing. That's why Jenna and I love Quip, and apparently so does everyone else, because they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at $25, and... If you go to getquip.com slash survivor, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash survivor. There were so many things happen. Um, I remember this one place my mom took uh, me and my siblings because it was a rainy season, um, and most of the time we had to go through the bushes and we were hungry. And uh, we were asking, you know, where to go at least we can, you know, lay our heads down and or even, even drink water. So, um, and I remember when we reached to this home, uh, it was where my mom, in the, in the village where my mom grew up, so... We we were so wet and our feet swollen and we didn't know how to um, um, what my mom didn't know what to do and she decided to knock the door of this home of this house. The woman was there with her with her children and the husband was at the roadblock actually in the night, um, you know, killing people, tutsis. So. As we, um, we knocked the door, uh, this woman refused to um, open the door. So she, the more she refused, somehow her children recognized my mom's voice because my mom taught some of the kids in school before. And, um, and they begged her to help her and her children, so they kept crying. And the more, you know, they, they begged her, it got to a point where she 
accepted and opened the door. And she said, I, I never, you know, liked a Tutsi in my life. So it's just because of my kids. That's why I'm opening this door for you. And she, she said, I'm not going to keep you for a long time. It's just for a night. She fed us, which was very unusual, so, and gave us a, a place to sleep on. And um, early that morning, she said, my husband, even if I allowed you to be here, so my husband, whenever he comes back, he's going to kill you. So early that morning, she decided to take us in a, a small abandoned house, which was uh, close to her home. Uh, and her mother-in-law used to live in there. So it was very, very small and uh, nobody lived there so that she can, you know, close it on the outside and no one would ever think someone would be there. Her husband came in that morning, so with uh, other killers who were neighbors. One of the people who came with the husband actually was someone who uh, grew up with my mom across the street. And somehow when they were sitting outside, we could hear them talking. And uh, they actually told them, this wife, uh, the, the wife, to give them the key of that home, of that small house. They wanted to actually put some of the belongings that they had um, in that small house. But she was afraid that they were going to find us. And she refused. The more she refused, they um, actually insisted. Uh, they realized that she's hiding them. She gave them the key and they opened. Um, this young man who uh, grew up across uh, where my mom grew up, he, he came and he had a machete and he started um, swinging and how he was going to kill, you know, my mom and, and all of us. So so luckily, we begged him, we cried and begged him, so he was able to stop. But this bunch of killers decided to um, take my mom and my younger brother. The rest of us kids stayed there, and they were, you know, uh, decided, you know, by taking my mom to where uh, we were living before. And as my mom was taken by these killers there, this neighbor refused to help, so... Uh, they decided to leave my mom to this neighbor. And the rest of us kids, uh, you know, as, as I kept, you know, um, telling my siblings, uh, you know, that we, we don't know whether we're going to see our mom, but of course comforting them. So we reached where my mom was. Already the killers in the village started talking how many of us are still alive. So they decided to plan how they were going to to start killing one, you know, from one to another. So, and um, already immediately during the genocide, actually, uh, they used to, to kill boys first, whether you're a little boy and up to the older person. And in this, um, when the day came, um, these killers decided to come and take my brothers. So uh, it was very hard um for me and my mom, all of us wanted to be killed, so none of us wanted to, to be separated. But um, they, they took my brothers um, while we were, you know, they were trying to be taken, all of us, they pushed us on the side, so they took my three younger brothers who were uh, age nine, seven, and 16 months old and they took them to our destroyed home and that's where they slaughtered them and threw them in a septic tank of our destroyed home. It was very hard for my mom, as you can imagine how terrible it was for her to see her little boys 
you know, one of them snatched from her. We were able to find a place to hide again, which was now a short distance from where we were. So most of the time, um, women were many, because rape was used as a weapon during the genocide, women and girls were, um, you know, uh, being raped uh, by and kept being raped. If Some of them were by several killers and torturing them. Others were uh, killed right after being raped. So, um, and that's why you could see um, many women uh, still alive. So um, the men of the household came and he was together with um, someone who has murdered people, many, many people as a neighbor. So I knew very well. And um, he decided to pull me from my mom and my sister. So all of us cried and screamed, um, but they refused. None, even this man didn't even help. So um, I was uh, dragged by him on the street. So um, I was taken by him not too far from our um, home. So beaten by him all over, you know, with the back of the sword and, um, and you know, tortured by him you know, stripped my clothes, and torn them, and I was raped by him. And he left me there and um, hoping that many other killers will come and uh, torture me. Uh, but um, I was able to uh, drag myself, even though on the street I needed to find someone to kill me. So, um, and I found my mom again. She saw how I looked, uh, which was not easy for her to see how her daughter looked like not too long ago, how her sons were tortured. And now to see how I looked, it was not easy for her. So, um, but I didn't want to leave anymore. So, but when you survive, things keep happening where um, we found um, the last person who was actually kind enough to hit us um, in his home. He protected us, even though we were already broken. That's how we're able to survive. And we already lost many people in our family. Even on my dad's side, almost everybody is murdered. Mostly many people I have are on my mom's side. Some of them were hiding in many other places. So, And um, as you can imagine, surviving um, with the pain and the trauma and uh, you, you have within yourself. So it was not easy, especially for these, a, young, a young girl like myself. I didn't know how my life was going to be. Ooh, letting your friend cut your bangs. Not smart. Unless they're a professional. Yeah. <laughs> good, good point. <laughs> letting your unprofessional friend cut your bangs. Not smart. Forgetting your coffee on top of your car while you drive away. Probably not the smartest thing. Ooh. Look, we all do silly, unsmart things. But we've said it before, and we'll say it again. A very smart thing you can do if you're looking for top-notch employees is head to ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't overwhelm you with a bunch of resumes that you'll never have time to sift through. Unlike some other job sites out there, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you'll get qualified candidates fast. 
And that's exactly why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, all of you lovely iSurvivor listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Survivor. Once again, we have this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash S-U-R-V-I-V-O-R. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. How did you start healing? Like, what did that look like? Um, it was not easy, but I was very fortunate because I had um, a mom who, at least I'm one of the few survivors who has a parent. So uh, it was very uh, painful until um, I came here. That's when I actually started um you know, uh, to think about everything has happened to me, the trauma of being raped, and uh, now later on finding out as a, as a consequences of what happened to me, many of the women and girls have is living with HIV, um, which was another another pain to live with. So um, I I am grateful because my mom is the one who kept. Um, you know, reminding me to never give up. So um, never give up. And um, thankfully, I am a person uh, of faith. And uh, really, it has helped me also. But one of the things that helped me the most is to be able to find the courage to talk about it. Um, And uh, being able to open up a little bit of what happened to me was um, a beginning of of healing. So I, I felt like it was a load lifted off my shoulder. So uh, because many years, it took me more than 15 years to be able to uh, talk about it because when I came here, I thought I was going to forget everything. But at the same time, I was carrying the pain within myself. So um, I want to be able to um, to feel good within myself. So And um, I realized that um, I'm one of the fortunate women um, in uh, survivors, at least who, despite the consequence of living with HIV, there are others who live with HIV and also physically not functioning because of what happened to them. Widows who lost the entire families, they lost their children and husbands, they were raped, and now they live with um, consequences of what happened to them. They the psychological trauma and physical, you know, and they are not able to function anymore. So I realized that I'm one of the fortunate ones that I needed to um, to be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves. So, and it also helped me uh, in my healing journey to feel like whenever I tell my story, uh, I'm speaking for so many who cannot be able to tell their own stories of what happened to them. I know there are many who even went worse I went through, but I know for them, I want to also encourage them to tell their stories because we want to be able to um, not only uh, heal from what happened to us, at the same time, we want to be able to to find justice because many of the perpetrators um, never face justice for what they have done to us. So it's... um, it's not um, it's not easy. It's painful, but at the same time, I feel that um, I wanna, you know, it was also a way of helping me to 
uh, to find hope, to feel like life is still worth living. I'm here for a reason and uh, I need to be also uh, there for others. Whenever I speak, I know they, they, what happened to us, it's also see happening to other women uh, in other parts of the world where there's a conflict, where women are, you know, uh, subject to rape and, uh, and torture. So, and it's still happening. I, I don't need, uh, I need to speak out also making sure the world hears that and making sure they stop that from keep happening again. Thank you so much. I think that's all the time that we have. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank you for taking the time to share your story. I'm so sorry about everything. And yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to really share this and, and, you know, help educate the world about how important this is. And it's not just going to, ha- you know, we all think it's not going to happen to us. And we need to Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah, you for having me. Um, it's really, uh, it's not always uh, <laughs> easy for me to uh, to talk about it, but I think um, when, uh, you know, people like you help me, you know, share <laughs> my story. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. Thanks again. Um, and we'll be in touch about when the episode comes out and we'll let you know. So. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you have very a good much. rest of the day. Yeah. You too. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you to Consolina Shimwe for joining us. And thank you for listening. So we know that the circumstances leading up to the Rwandan genocide are really complicated and we only gave a brief overview. So to learn more, check out Consley's book, Tested to the Limit, a genocide survivor story of pain, resilience and hope. And you can learn more at genocideresearcher.org. There'll be a link in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of I Survivor and learned a lot. We did. If you did, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening to this now. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. Also, we have some great offers from our sponsors like Quip. We're able to bring you great content for free by support from our advertisers. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash survivor right now, you can get your first refill pack for free with your Quip electric toothbrush. This has been I Survivor. This episode was hosted by me, Jenna Brister, and Magatwe Wenjuki. Audio engineering by Sergio Enriquez. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. I Survivor is produced by Leah Sutherland. For Wondery, the executive producers are Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez. If you're Gen X like me, your childhood probably sounded like some combination of... and... But not so long ago, video games were almost exclusively played by the programmers who made them. On our new series, we're telling the story of how video games broke out of university computer labs and found their way straight to the heart of popular culture. I'm Stephen Johnson, the host of Wondery's show, American Innovations, where we tell the stories behind the inventions that have shaped our modern world. Listen to video games on American Innovations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app.